Hello and welcome to the BSI Education Podcast with me, Matthew Childs. And me, Alan Sellers. Hello, Alan. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And how are you, Matthew? I'm very well, thank you. We've had another email sent to us at education at bsigroup.com. Really? Another one? Tell me more. <laughs> Nick from Canterbury writes, Dear Martin and Alex. Mm. That's close enough. <laughs> I've recently started a PhD looking at the history of architectural and structural engineering standards. That sounds really interesting, Nick. And maybe, Alan, something we should pick up on for a future episode. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, I digress. Nick continues. In the last episode of the podcast, I was fascinated to hear the stories of UCL postgraduates Jenny and Natalia and their group research projects. And in particular, how some of the project team members had gone on to become standards makers with BSI as a result of their research. It got me thinking, how easy is it to get involved? Well, Nick, thanks ever so much for your email. And I suppose the answer to your question is pretty easy, really. Just visit bsigroup.com forward slash get involved and take it from there. What would you say, Alan? Yeah, it is that easy. And it's really important for standards development to have a diverse range of voices and experiences round the table to develop those standards. Now, the episode Nick is referring to is episode eight of the podcast, where we do indeed discuss how BSI supports student research projects and how some of those students have now become standards makers. Now, if that's of interest to you, then you should also check out episode one, which features young engineers Kat Rosier and Navdeep Mihai, where they describe their experiences of being standards makers and the benefit that this has had and is continuing to have on their successful careers. And I suppose it's also worth saying we are planning a future episode, again, featuring uh, young standards makers. So do look out for that. Now, back to the business in hand. The aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind standards and standardisation. In this episode, we focus on the often controversial relationship between standards and innovation. Our guest is Peter Swan, Emeritus Professor of Industrial Economics at Nottingham University Business School. Peter has been researching and teaching the economics of innovation since 1980 and is the author of eight books and over 100 articles, chapters and reports. He has carried out many studies for many UK government departments and international agencies and organisations including the OECD and EU. And as you'll hear, he also has some fascinating things to say about tree pruning. He has indeed. Now, before we hear from Peter, a quick reminder that for more information on BSI education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. This link and others on the themes raised in this episode can be found in the episode notes. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and share us on social media using the hashtag BSI EdPod. And if you have any comments, suggestions, questions or ideas for future episodes, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really do welcome your feedback. So in this episode of the podcast, we are delighted to be joined by Peter Swan. Hello, Peter. How are you? Hello, Matthew. Hello, Alan. Well, I'm very well, thanks. And I hope you are too. We are very good. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Really do appreciate it. Now, in our intro, uh, Peter, we hinted at your long and successful academic career. But just to give a bit more background, you've been Professor of Economics and Management of Innovation at Manchester Business School and Associate Professor of Economics at London, at London Business School. You've also held several advisory positions, including Specialist Advisor to the UK House of Lords Committee on Science and Technology, 
a member of the academic panel of the UK government's innovation review. You were also founding and managing editor of the journal Economics of Innovation and New Technology and awarded an OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours List in 2005 for services to business and economic policy. Now, you're currently Emeritus Professor of Industrial Economics at Nottingham University Business School. I think it's fair to say you've, you've hung up your teaching spurs, but you've continued with your research interests? Yes, that's right. Um, I, I've, I've written a couple of books since I retired, and I've done one or two pieces of work related to standards, but nothing terribly original. But no, I, I continue to do research, but, it, but the process is slowing down. I'm very aware of that. So, Peter, as we like to say in these podcasts, we are keen to learn about the standards journey of our guests. So how did you get here and what's your standards journey been like? Okay, thank you. Well, there there are two important steps here. One happened between uh, uh, school and university. I had a gap year and during that time I worked for, um, you know, work experience with um, Ferranti, the electronics company. Uh, at their crew toll factory up in Edinburgh, which was my hometown. And um, there I worked with standard logic chips. These were the things made popular by Texas Instruments, but they then became a sort of pervasive industry standard. And my job was to sort of test old circuit boards and if necessary, repair them by putting in a new chip of from these standard uh, logic chips. So I. I, I learned very early what an incredibly clever idea it was. It was sort of a bit like playing around with Lego, except that instead of just creating a little toy house, you could actually uh, create a, a board that would go into a computer. The second step really was with my PhD. I mean, uh, it started off doing some economic theory. Um, this was at London School of Economics. But then my supervisor wanted me to come up with uh, an, an example where there were very r- rapid rates of product improvement, improvements in product quality. And I thought, you know, what with Moore's law saying that the number of components per chip was doubling every year, standard logic or microprocessors as it was by then seemed to be the obvious case study to look at. So that's how I got back into working on electronics. And of course, you know, at the moment you start researching microprocessors and PCs, the whole area of standards comes up again. And so it's really always been on my uh, on my agenda since then. Now, Peter, we've invited you on here to talk about the relationship between standards and innovation. So I suppose the first question is a simple one. And in a, in a, in a classic undergraduate essay style, we want to de- define our terms here. So what is innovation? We could say that our Stone Age ancestors were innovators. They created tools and artifacts to, for the use and benefit of their family, like stone tools, wooden spears, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I think when academics talk about innovation, they're talking about the 20th century, essentially. Um, and most of it's concerned with business innovation. How do we define it? A very popular definition, which has been used in policy circles in the UK and other countries, is innovation is the successful application of new ideas in business. Um, I would, 40 years later, I'd modify that slightly to the successful new application of ideas in business. The key point I'm getting at there is it doesn't matter if the ideas are old, 
the point is that you apply them in a new way. So, uh, for example, if you think of the brilliant ideas on genetics from Gregor Mendel, which were ignored for 40, 50 years, and then suddenly at the beginning of the 20th century, people picked them up and thought, wow, we can do some interesting things with these. So it's the new application that matters rather than whether the ideas are, are new in themselves. And as an economist, I suppose what's you've mentioned there that uh, innovation has become an increasingly imp important issue and it's, it's associated with uh, more about the, the modern world. What's the fascination of innovation for economists and why is it important for the economy? If you go back to some of the most influential early works in economics, we tend to date that to about 1760, 1770, before that economics was hardly studied at all. All the great pioneers writing about economics wrote about technical change and innovation. So from Adam Smith, who used to be on the um, 20 pound note, uh, um, onwards, all kinds of people, Charles Babbage, John Stuart Mill, Karl Marx, Alfred Marshall, all of them put innovation right at the center of their discussion of economics. And then suddenly, Paradoxically, once we got into the 20th century, almost no economists talked about innovation anymore, which is rather odd given what was happening in the 20th century. Um, and then round about the early 50s or mid 50s, a group of American and a few British economists suddenly started to think, look, you know, are we missing something here? And a, a very famous one of them called Robert Solo, who, who's still alive, in his, I think he may be in his 90s now of MIT and the United States, he, he produced a research study which concluded, and I'm going to read the passage, gross output per man doubled over the interval 1909 to 1949, with 87.5% of that attributable to technical change, and only 12% of it attributable to increased investment. And I think when people read that, they thought, my goodness me, we're, we're missing the major part of the story here. It's just ridiculous. That, and thereafter, the topic of economics of innovation was reborn. It became much, much more popular. Um, and when I started researching it late 70s, um, there weren't a lot of students doing it, but it became much, much more popular. And now it's probably one of the most active areas of industrial economics, probably the most active. Innovation important for the economy. I think there's a general acceptance of that principle. But what happens if people and organisations don't innovate? It's important for society. Um, we take for granted lots of things that have been delivered by innovators. Um, but it's also important for the economy as a machine. We have, for better or worse, a machine called the economy, which has to grow if it's going to perform normally. If it doesn't grow, it starts doing funny things. And innovation is one of the principal engines of growth. And so that's why you know, there's an additional reason it's so important. What happens if people and organizations don't innovate? Um, there's an old dictum I'm sure you've heard, which goes, um, innovate or die. Essentially, what it says is that those operating in a competitive market may have to innovate because otherwise they will lose market share to the more innovative rivals and eventually get driven out of business. But on the other hand, organisations that have a monopoly probably don't need to innovate. And if at the risk of being a little bit mischievous, um, if I were asked to 
pick an organization in the UK which perhaps most needs to innovate but is not doing so, I think I'd probably choose the Houses of Parliament in Westminster, who still in these COVID era, in this COVID era, um, are queuing up in what they call a conga, I think they call it, so that they can all vote through the lobbies in the normal way while maintaining social distance. And uh, it's funny to hear what the Scots say about this when they all vote online in the Holyrood Parliament. Um, so, but, you know, is that damaging Parliament in Westminster? I don't know. It seems to be just as powerful as ever and flourishing. So maybe they don't have to innovate, even if we'd like them to do so. When you said, about, uh, you said no, no, you said when you say you're about to be mischievous, I thought you was about to say BSI then. Uh, no, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I you do the conger at BSI then, Matthew? <laughs> <laughs> do we do the conger at BSI? Obviously, well, we don't see each other anymore because obviously we're all we're all working. Uh, we're all working. Yeah, no, you're doing but yeah, well. yeah, we do, we only do the conger every every fourth Friday. So uh, yeah, oh, yeah right. it's, it's, okay. <laughs> you, you've cut down then. Um, just one more observation on that. What about people who don't innovate? I, I mean, I have a, a delightful acquaintance who's a retired medieval historian, quite elderly, and his attitude is the precise opposite of innovate or die. Um, I mean, he won't use computers, email, the internet, mobile phones, texts, or anything of that sort. Um, and he's completely unrepentant about this. And if you ask him about it, he just says, you want me to innovate? I'd rather die. And so his maxim is, you know, it's innovate and die, if you like. So he's flourishing. He's writing books in his 1980s and he doesn't need any help from modern technology. So I think it's probably fair to say that it's competitive businesses who most need to innovate to survive. I've got a, a quote that says, uh, we always want to create something new out of nothing and without research and without long, hard hours of effort. But there is no such thing as a quantum leap. There is only dogged persistence. And in the end, you make it look like a quantum leap. So I think it, it's almost saying innovation is just small steps towards making something better. And in the end, you just end up making it look like it's innovative, which, which I think is an interesting perception because yeah. something innovative is it just making it look different is that innovation or or what really is innovation is it that large step change that that makes something new and what what's what is that well it, it's a very good question i certainly agree with alan that you know a lot of business innovation is a sequence of small steps we call sometimes call it incremental innovation um, and by increments, you know, you, you, you go a long way, but each step on its own is quite a small one. Uh, as to the answer as, as to which is it, um, there's a fudge in the same way that some other sciences have a bit of a fudge on this. We tend to say now amongst economists, we don't just talk of innovation. We talk of innovation with an adjective in front of it. Um, so, you know, radical innovation will be the invention of the microprocessor, let's say, or the integrated circuit. Um, incremental innovation will be, you know, a slightly bigger memory chip with, you know, more densely packed memory. There. And then we talk about um, responsible innovations where the innovator is not just concerned in making a quantum leap technologically, they're also 
trying to take account of how this is going to fit into a particular business or social setting and so on. And we have a stream of adjectives we use. And that way we sort of fudge the difference. So yes, innovation can be very small. It can also be very big. And we use different adjectives to describe those. That's a, a nice segue for us, actually, Peter, because you mentioned their responsible innovation. And I, I didn't ask you to mention mention it, but uh, hmm. BSI has produced a, a new standard on responsible innovation called PAS hmm. 440. And, and, hmm. and uh, we will be covering that on a future podcast, won't we, Alan? On, uh, we will. On that with, uh, okay. with colleagues at Innovate UK and, uh, and colleagues at Edinburgh University. So that's coming up in, in a few weeks' time. Well, on, on standards then, I mean, we've... Again, we've asked you to, to come on to talk about uh, about innovation, but also the relationship between standards and innovation. And it's, I think it's fair to say that it's an often controversial one or, or one that is uh, misunderstood. So I suppose getting right to the heart of it, I mean, do standards, do they enable or constrain innovation? Well, it is the heart of it. It's a key question. And it's one of the questions that the Department of Trade and Industry asked me when they got me to write that survey in the year 2000 of what we know about the economics of innovation and they they said you've really got to come up with an answer to that do standards enable or constrain um and i think at that time there was in the policy world a view that it's a bit of either or you know either you get good standards which don't constrain very much and which support innovation enable innovation and that's healthy or you might have less good standards or even bad standards, which do constrain a lot and don't actually do very much to enable innovation. And that, I think, was the prevailing view. But I have to say, the more I looked at what research had been done, that, that simple view was too simple. First of all, um, some standards neither enabled nor constrained. And I'm referring here to standards, this may be more common maybe in Germany than in in Deutsche Institute for Norman than in the BSI, but these are standards which, if you like, sort of rationalize what's already going on ex post. You look at industry standards that already exist, where people have done innovations uh, based on that, and then you say, well, let, let's codify all that and explain what's going on. And almost by definition, a standard of that sort, which is retrospective, is unlikely to constrain very much because things have already happened uh, and it's also unlikely to promote any more innovation because the innovations have already happened so that at least exists more controversially however there was a view around in the 1990s amongst economists though i don't think some policymakers were so keen on this that actually standards may constrain and enable at the same time and almost standards enable because they constrain something else. So it's, if you like, people might do two sorts of innovation. One that is natural, but not necessarily leading anywhere. And another, which is what you really want to encourage. And for the standard to encourage the second and discourage the first, there has to be a bit of constraining to enable the thing you actually want. Do you see what I mean? So paradoxically, and this was a controversial idea, um, they can work together at the same time. Now, empirically speaking, which of those four possibilities is the most important? And there's a simple answer to that, which comes from a survey that has been carried out for some years in the UK and all the other EU countries called the Community Innovation Survey. And that 
contains, it, it's repeated every three or four years, that contains two questions relating to standards. One asks, um, do standards inform and enable your innovation strategies? Yes or no. And a second one asks, do regulations and standards constrain your innovation strategies? So they're the two questions. Now, if you think about it, uh, if you combine the answers to those um, two questions, there are four possible outcomes. One, they enable, but don't constrain. Two, they constrain, but don't enable. Three, they neither enable nor constrain. And then four, the controversial one, they both enable and constrain. So which of those was the most common? Well, surprising as it may seem, the last of those was the most common, 39%. I'm referring here to a UK survey from around 2005, so it's a little dated, but I don't think the numbers will have changed that much. 39% said both enable and constrain. Counterintuitive perhaps, but actually empirically quite common. So you can see that the most controversial one is the most common. And that's a difficult message to get across. There's tension in that answer, isn't there? Yeah, there is. There's tension when you talk about it. Because you know that some people in the policy world just didn't believe it. And yet, if you believe that survey, and all we these, after all, are business people talking about what they think standards and regulations do to their business. It's not me as an economist interpreting what they believe, it's what they've said themselves. So it's it's full of tension, yeah. Now, obviously, Peter, that is a, as you say, quite a sort of controversial finding there. So how do you how do you communicate that idea to, to non-economists? Well, um, the Department of Trade and Industry put that result and some others produced by other researchers uh, into a press release, which they sent out to newspapers. And that provoked um, a headline in one of the newspapers. I can't remember if it was the Telegraph or the Scotsman, which said academics claim that red tape is good for business. And it was a very telling response because it was really people saying, what you're saying is counterintuitive. Do we really believe what these academics are telling us or is this just uh, fantasy? So the challenge therefore was to find a way of making that controversial idea appear a bit less controversial. And I was a bit stuck on this until I thought maybe I could use my um, interest in gardening and growing fruit trees to provide uh, a nice analogy which will help us here. Um, and you'll know, both of you, that uh, there's a famous episode in the history of science where one of the great scientists of all time um, was greatly inspired by an apple tree and what he discovered became very important. Is this, the, is this your Newton moment, uh, Peter? Well, I mean, I'm not sure I'm capable of a Newton moment, but I'm certainly referring to Sir Isaac Newton watching as a young man the apple tree at the apple falling from the apple tree and at his home in Lincolnshire and and then thinking, right, that's the that's gravity done now. I've sorted that. My um, Newton moment or apple tree moment anyway was a bit more modest, let's be honest, but I was sitting in the garden on a very sunny day and uh, observing all the apples on on the on the tr apple tree and I was very pleased about that because I'd done some very careful pruning in the previous 
couple of uh, autumns, winters, uh, to, to try and improve, you know, the, the, the growth of apples on the tree. And I, I, I had reason to, then to reflect a bit about what you do with uh, why pruning has this beneficial effect. I mean, as a, a non-biologist, I thought, why is it that, you know, um, natural selection doesn't just teach trees the best way to grow so that they maximize the amount of fruit that they grow? But actually, for many centuries, um, you know, we humans have been uh, pruning trees to increase the productivity of fruit. So why is that? And then it suddenly occurred to me, there's something similar here with the standards uh, result, which was so controversial. So when I prune a tree, I am in a sense trying to tell the tree, don't innovate by putting on too many side shoots and new twigs and so on, because we don't want those. Instead, put your effort into the other sort of innovation that you're so good at, which is growing apples. Um, so it, in a sense, the fact that you constrain is essential to enable the innovation you really want. So you constrain one type of innovation, if you like, to ensure that the one you really want actually takes place. And um, therefore, in that context, and OK, it's a completely different context, the idea that standards or pruning in this context both constrain and enable is, is really not that controversial at all. So that idea went down actually very well with the policymakers, some of whom said, yes, yes, um, uh, we like that because most economic theory we find pretty unpalatable, but actually that's nice and intuitive. The, the DTI economists, I think, were a bit more ambivalent because they thought, well, yeah, it's fine as a sort of stepping stone, but can't you come up with a proper theory of economic theory of this and yeah I had to in due course well took another 10 years um, but there was one treasury economist present at, at the meeting and he didn't like it at all he really disliked the analogy and I can see why um, however uh, a couple of years later I met him at a, a standards conference in Berlin and he told me that actually although he hadn't liked it at the time he could see why it was a useful stepping stone to help people understand that the idea that standards both constrain and some, some of the time both constrain and enable is actually not that it's not that crazy after all. So, Peter, that is that is absolutely fascinating. I just wonder, I suppose, responding to your, to your last point there about uh, a really useful analogy. But then how do you then turn that into something? Uh, an, an economic theory that would be sort of embraced or, or challenged by fellow economists? I wish I could say there was a simple answer to that. Unfortunately, it's a rather complex and messy answer. But the basic idea, there are two basic ideas. First of all, if you're looking for direct effects from standards to innovation, you, know, you, you plant a standard and then suddenly innovations happen, You'll, you'll be lucky to find that. It isn't usually like that. Much more often, the effects of standards on innovation are indirect. They go through a number of different channels. Um, and I have a diagram, which is too complicated to describe in complete detail, but the simple essence of it is we have three columns. On the left, we have the various aspects or purposes of standards. What is it they're trying to do? So some of them will describe a lot of codified knowledge that anyone in the industry would know. 
Um, some of them will describe um, certain sort of minimum quality requirements or performance requirements that you need to achieve. Others will define certain standards of measurement, how you measure the system or the product or service. Others will say things about compatibility and so on. Others will be to do with health and safety and so on. You, you, you know the list. So there's quite a long list there. What we tend to find is that in all the case studies we've looked at, these will quite credibly have an effect on what we might call intermediate economic variables. These are things that nobody talks about in the newspaper headlines, but are important to us as economists. So for example, one of the most important effects of standards, it seems to me, is on the division of labor. And that is something that we know in economics increases productivity. I and mean, that, that idea goes right back to the foundation of economics with Adam Smith. Um, another very important effect is the ability of, to use standards to increase scale economies. And that's another very important intermediate effect in economics. We then have something we call network effects. Um, that's not really a very difficult concept. Uh, it says that if you have a, an industry standard in a information technology, that makes it very easy for small companies to come in and produce something that's compatible with that standard and adds on extra functionality. So for example, if you think of our iPhones or Android phones, all those apps that you can download, Many of those are nothing to do with, with Google or Android or anything else, um, but they've been created for that platform. Now, I know that's not a BSI standard, but nonetheless, it is a, an important industry standard, even if it's a proprietary one. So th those are the intermediate economic effects. Um, and we can trace the way standards impact on that. The next step is how does that feed into the ultimate economic effects that we're really interested in? like innovation, productivity, competition, trade, and, and growth. So there is a rather complicated sequence of linkages between all of those. And to describe them all, really, you have to look at a graph. But I think most of those are fairly uncontroversial. The trouble is, each case study will be slightly different. The patterns will be slightly different. I think, Matthew, we might have to innovate the podcast so we can display graphs to people. <laughs> we may I'm have just... to do that. I was about to say, Peter, while you were talking there, that uh, we will put link links uh, to your your papers will be yeah. uh, the episode notes. So so people okay. want to dive into those papers. Well, if anyone wants to follow that up, yeah. Okay, final thought then, Peter. It, it's... Um, you talked there about the the the, the key relationship uh, between standards and innovation, and about how those uh, both enables and constrains at the same time. Obviously, we can talk about that in broad terms across an entire economy. But how about the differences between industries and, and sectors, maybe even regions of, of an economy? I can't say very much about regions, but I can say about sectors. So here I'm talking about what we call the standard industrial classification two digits, which sort of sorts uh, the various parts of the economy into around about 90 different industries broadly defined. Um, and yes, I mean, there are important differences there. The greatest number of industries follow the same pattern as uh, I described before, the, and, and that is 
that the most common outcome is that standards support and constrain, or enable and constrain at the same time. And the next most common is that they don't support and don't constrain. So it's the same pattern as, uh, as the overall average. But there are two groups that are rather different. In one, it's the other way around. The most important outcome or the most common outcome is that um, standards don't enable innovation and they don't constrain either. And those industries tend to be what I would call sort of traditional industries with lower than average rates of innovation. So for example, mining and quarrying, textiles, manufacture of, of apparel, clothes, I suppose, uh, publishing and printing, construction, retail trade, hotels and restaurants, uh, real estate. Okay, so none of which are particularly high tech. I mean, you might dispute that around the edges, but so with them, really standards don't particularly constrain and don't particularly enable, but they're there for a purpose nonetheless. The other group, which is quite a small one, is in a sense at the opposite end of the spectrum. For this group, the most common outcome again is that respondents say, well, standards do enable, but they also constrain. And then the next most common response is that standards do enable, certainly, and they don't constrain. So a, a big positive for the effect of standards there. Um, now that group is totally different. They are high-tech industries with a, with a higher than average level of innovation. So chemicals, um, various machinery and equipment, office machinery and computers, radio, television and communications, motor vehicle manufacture and computer and related activities. So I think you can see a pattern there where um, for most industries, there's this mixture of constraining and enabling. For the high tech ones, it's more enabling than constraining. And for the uh, more traditional industries, it's neither. There's a perception that innovation is accelerating or is at, the pace of innovation is increasing yeah. in those high tech areas. And there's also a perception that the standards development process, because of the nature of the consensus that it needs to become a, a standard that's acceptable, that those two different paces are going to be too different so that the constraining effect of standards could be greater as, as innovation and the mm. pace of innovation increases. I wondered if you had any thoughts around that. Yeah. It's, it's a very good point and one that I have heard from several biz, business people and, and not just recently, you know, 20 years ago even, that, you know, there is a potential um, mismatch here. Um, I think my response to it is a slightly controversial one. Um, many business people would say, well, you know, standards bodies can't act fast enough to meet our needs. And I, as an economist, standing back and thinking, well, yes, the business interest is very important, but I'm interested in society as a whole, and that includes consumers, government, and, and you know, society. Is it that standards bodies are too slow, or is it that the innovation process has got too fast? And I think there are certainly some industries where you do feel 
the innovation process has got too fast for an awful lot of consumers, really. I'm, I'm sure every time a new bit of uh, IT equipment comes out, there'll be some consumers who are delighted to have the latest version. And there'll be others who think, oh, no, I've got to upgrade again, uh, or I've got to use a slightly different version of the software. I wish, it, I wish they'd just slow down. Um, I, I think <laughs> I think I think you're entirely right about that. There certainly will be people that feel like that. I think the rush and the hurry that is around uh, innovation that that you can feel is is certainly certainly very acute. Peter, I think you've highlighted the uh, the, the challenge uh, that all standards bodies face. Face uh, BSI is, is no different, and in fact, it is just to plug uh, the future episodes. We are going to be looking at the sort of future of standardization and how how standards are developed uh, yeah, because i think it's a, it's a really important point and something i think that uh, listeners will be interested in you have been listening to an episode of the bsi education podcast for more information on bsi education go to bsigroup.com forward slash education this link and others on the themes raised in this episode can be found in the episode notes do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and share us on social media using the hashtag BSIEdPod. And if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, then please do get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We welcome your feedback. All that remains is for me to say thank you, Peter. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. And of course, to thank you for listening. <laughs>